In this sutta is called All the Taints. Now we have already mentioned one time before Taints. It's M2, number two out of the middle length things. M means middle length things, M2. Taints. There are three kinds of taints, and they are the, in Pali, the asavas. And um, literally translated, it means the outflow. That's what flows out from us, because it is within, and there's no way to stop that outflow as long as one has that stuff within. Um, and these taints are three, mostly mentioned as three, and one of them is called the taint of being, but that is a bit of a sort of a misnomer actually, one doesn't quite understand it, because it means the um, craving to be, our you know, strong desire to be. And it's really an underlying factor of all our thoughts, speech, and action. I want to be. And essentially, it's a lost cause because eventually we're not going to be sooner or later. <laughs> in some cases, sooner, in some cases, later. <laughs> So we are really um, constantly following a lost cause and because of that we're having a bad time with it naturally. We don't recognize it as a lost cause but we have an underlying inkling that maybe we're not going to make it which we definitely are not. So this is our first taint. The word taint is a strong word, um, outflow, ten, underlying tendency possibly could be said, underlying tendency. The second uh, one is our craving for sensual gratification. Because of this taint of being, which is um, our craving for being, we, of course, don't just want to be. We want to be pleasantly. We don't want to be unpleasantly. So naturally, we'd like to have <coughs> sensual gratification. And the, the third one of the taints is the, usually called the taint of you. Um, well, in this case, of course, it concerns, um, sometimes it's also called the taint of ignorance. It's the same thing. Ignorance means, in this case, the ignorance of the non-self, and view means the wrong view of self. So it's both actually the same thing. Sometimes they're both mentioned so that we wind up with four taints <coughs> instead of three. And... Uh, it's a no cause for lament because being a human being we've all got them we don't have to keep them but we've all got them so I find it always rather consoling to realize 
<clears throat> that one is in the same boat with everybody else. It doesn't do much for one's superiority complex, but it may do a lot for one's inferiority complex. <laughs> I mean, we're just exactly alike. We've got those three underlying tendencies, which is actually something else that we are, um, the underlying tendencies in terminology are the uh, anusyas, and this is the asavas. And the word taint uh, denotes that it is something which is impure. And that is correct. So we could call them the three impurities with rather than the te- underlying tendencies because that denotes something else in the terminology. So if, if you've written down tendency, take it away and put in three impurities. Okay? And that's, that's the... Uh, uh, a better or a good way of describing them um, because the impurity arises out of the fact that we don't have pure view and not complete wisdom and not complete wisdom is denoted by ignorance and not pure view is denoted by wrong view of self so now here the Buddha tells us exactly how to get it on all we have to do is do it this goes in great detail how to get rid of it. So it's really interesting. Thus have I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jeta's Grove, Anathapindika's Park. There he addressed the Bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, Venerable Sir, they replied. The Blessed One said this, Bhikkhus, I shall expound to you a discourse on the restraint of all the taints, the Asavas, Listen and heed well what I shall say. Yes, Venerable Sir, they replied. The Blessed One said this, Because I say that there is an exhaustion of taints in one who knows and sees, and not in one who does not know and see. Who knows and sees what? Wise attention and unwise attention. When a man attends unwisely, both unarisen taints arise and arisen taints increase. When he attends wisely, both unarisen taints do not arise and arisen taints are abandoned. And now he gives one, two, three, seven ways of the, of abandoning them, of abandoning these taints. Taints can be ad- abandoned by seeing, which means insight, by restraining, by using, by enduring, by avoiding, by removing, by developing. And now he gives exact instructions on each one of them. Now the first one is about insight. And if you're sick and tired of getting insights, well, I'm afraid here's some more. Insight into oneself should be a joy and a relief. A joy and a relief of seeing things as they really are, rather than seeing them as one were to- was told that they might be or had made up oneself through viewpoints. When one sees reality, it should feel as if the blinkers were removed from one's eyes, the world became wide and uh, spacious, 
and one's own existence within that world has become easier. That should be a result of gaining any, any kind of insight. It doesn't matter which one. Even if one gains insight into something so mundane as figuring out how to put a bookcase together, that too should result in that feeling. It's very short-lived, that kind of feeling. It gives one confidence. It gives wider horizons, a greater perspective. Naturally, one doesn't keep that. But an insight into one's own inner being, that kind of insight would create a feeling which we can retain. So here it says, taints abandoned by seeing inside them. What taints can be abandoned by seeing? Here because an untaught, ordinary man who has no regard for noble ones is inconversant with their Dhamma and undisciplined <coughs> in it, who has no regard for the Sangha and is inconversant with their Dhamma and undisciplined in it, does not understand what dhammas are fit for attention or what are unfit. Now, again, we are coming across this difficulty of the word dhamma. In the first instance, what is meant is the teaching. Eh? In the second instance, phenomena. So, what, what is being said is, someone who has no regard for noble ones and has no idea of the teaching and is not disciplined in the teaching and does not understand what phenomena are fit for attention or what phenomena are unfit for attention, such as an untaught ordinary man. Since this is so, he does not attend to phenomena fit for attention and he attends to phenomena unfit for attention. Now, what phenomena are unfit? Those phenomena with which the unarisen taint of sensual desire being and ignorance arise in him or the arisen taint of sensual desire being and ignorance increase in him these are the dhammas unfit for attention to which he attends now what about sensual desire if we guard our sense doors sensual desire has a much smaller chance of arising so if we don't look for that which pleases us, it's much easier. So, being confronted with that what pleases us, we may be able to turn our attention away from it. If we have seen with clarity that our attention on this sensual object will make our sensual desire increase. Now, sensual desire is inherent in all human beings until the stage of non-returner. So even a uh, stream enterer, first stage of Nibbana, uh, once returner, second stage, still have it. Only the non-returner is free from that sensual desire. 
Now that means very clearly that our insights need time to settle within no matter what kind of insight doesn't have to be stream enter or non once returner any insight has to settle we have to give it a chance now that chance is given if we remember it bring it to the forefront of the mind and use it it then becomes our natural mode of being until we do that it may remain in our notebook. It's a nice place for it, but it's totally useless in the end. <laughs> so we've got to actually bring it back again and again and then use it. Act like it. So if we are conversant with an insight into that our clinging to certain things brings nothing but problems, the next step is to let go of that clinging whatever it is that we haven't happened to be clinging to actually let go of it don't just know it, do it and having done it twice or three times it's a natural way of being that's the way we are then we are a totally fluctuating fluctuating impermanent always changing phenomena so why shouldn't we change in the right direction? What is there to hold us back? Nothing at all except any kind of fetter that we make up ourselves. Anything which says, so am I, I am so... Uh, that comes later. I'll, I'll go on reading here. Just a minute. I think that's mentioned. So that's essential desire. What about being? This the craving to be. We shouldn't pay unwise attention to any phenomena which increases our craving to be. What kind of phenomena would it be that we could attend to? Well, anything that supports our ego illusion, our egocentricity, anything that supports it that we're looking for. Well, the first thing that we might be looking for would be a... Um, a support system, an emotional support system to other people. It's very uh, common and very um, effective. It makes us realize that we are. Our incessant thinking is another support system for being, for craving to be. Excessive attention to the body I'm not saying non-attention, I'm saying excessive attention to the body also increases our craving to be. I mean, we've got such an enormous portion of that craving to be that it is very uh, wise to look at these analyses that we have uh, talked about, these um, analytical uh, distinctions that the Buddha gives us in the form of aggregates and elements parts of the body and so forth which reduce the craving to be once we have identified within us the fact that we really aren't the gallbladder or the kidneys or the skin or the blood and the bones maybe with that our craving to be becomes a little less 
because we have looked at these things in the mind's eye and realized there's really nothing there that could be called me. So all this is the wise attention, is the um, thing that will help us, but the unwise attention is everything that supports this ego system. All identifications, whatever they may be, may they be ever so justifiable and correct in a manner of speaking. I am a woman, I am a man, I am young, I am old, I am stupid, I am clever. I mean, they may all be totally justifiable and correct, but all of them increase that uh, mode of, I want to be here. Now, ignorance, the ignorance of the non-self, it's so deeply ingrained that um, the only thing I can think of to say about it is that the um, attention to the Buddha's teachings about the um, aspect of ourselves which could help us to realize that there isn't such a thing would help us to shake that ignorance a bit. The ignorance only gets completely removed with the Arahant but it certainly um, changes when we have a first um, experience of non-self. What dhammas, what phenomena are fit for attention and he does not attend to them, they are the phenomena such that when he attends to them with his attention, the unarisen taints of sensual desire being an ignorance do not arise, and the risen taints are abandoned. These are the phenomena fit for attention to which he does not attend. He's talking about an untaught ordinary man. An untaught means he hasn't heard anything about this, that what we have been discussing, and ordinary means everybody. We're all ordinary, huh? And these people, ordinary, worldlings are called puttajanas and anyone who has gained access to the uh, path and has become a stream entra starts being called a noble one, an arya um, from the stream entra up to the arahant so a noble one is one who has gained right view doesn't mean he's got rid of all these taints but it's just got right view now that also is um, mentioned then. So the phenomena that we can attend to are also, of course, very strong mindfulness. Because when we have very strong mindfulness, we can become aware of the fact that seeing is just seeing and that it's the mind that gives us the uh, explanation of what we see. And that again helps us to realize that there's nobody sitting in there. Now, very often, I think I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worthwhile saying it again. Very often people think it's a great tragedy to lose this idea of self. Because they don't think it's an idea, they think it's an actual person they're going to lose. But what it actually amounts to 
it's that one gets rid of a tragedy because one gets rid of the tragedy of a deluded state of mind and by getting rid of that deluded state of mind the um, freedom which is attained even at the very first instance even when there's only a little understanding that freedom is uh, such a change from before that one also needs to get used to it by attending to phenomena unfit for attention and by not attending to phenomena fit for attention both the unarisen pains arise and the arisen pains increase now we mustn't imagine that these unarisen pains which are arising did not exist before they arise to the surface of the conscious mind they are in there they couldn't arise otherwise we don't just get them all of a sudden and of course those that are already in the conscious mind get an increase so even maybe we have a desire to eat something nice and then we stand in front of a delicatessen and, and look at all the stuff so that which is already there as a desire now gets an increase but if it hadn't been in the conscious mind and we stand in front of the delicatessen window, it might arise. Either way, it isn't going to be very profitable. To suppress this desire is also not very profitable. The best way to deal with these things when they arise is through insight. One of the things which can be extremely helpful when a desire of any kind arises which has to do with the senses because that's the desires which arise in us is to recognize the fact that we've had that kind of desire fulfilled many times before and that the satisfaction and gratification lasted a very very short time this can be very helpful because we have an the experiences of that available to us we have done all that we have gratified the eye and the ear and the nose and the taste and the touch and the smell before all we have to do is remember it which means that we have to slow down a little before gratifying whichever desire has come up and just think about it a moment and of course another thought process which could arise is if I do this and use my energy for that will it be profitable for me or can I use my energy differently and both are useful now here are some examples that the Buddha gives which are the um, about the desire, the uh, craving to be and that's of course in the mind this is how he attends unwisely was I in a past time? was I not in the past? what was I in the past? in other words, what kind of rebirth did I have before and where was I and all that? how was I in the past? 
Having been what? What was I? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been something, what shall I be then? Or else he is doubtful in himself about presently existing time. Thus, am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Whence will this being have come? Whither will it be bound? In other words, when one considers all that about oneself, one increases the craving to be something else, somebody. Who was I? Who am I going to be? I mean, people do play that parlor game, uh, who they were in past lives. If they take it seriously, it's dangerous. If they think it's, uh, you know, just for fun, well, that's okay. <laughs> you know, people think they were a Persian dancer or a Greek soldier or, you know, some great philosopher or something like that. Now, that kind of thing does increase one's craving to be again because it, it's supposed to support one's idea that one has been or is something now. And this questioning which is, am I, am I not, what am I, how am I, counteracts the intellectual analysis and shows the uselessness of that intellectual analysis without having the personal experience and the feeling about it. It's no use asking these questions. The thing is to go into the aggregates and the elements and so forth. Now, when he attends unwisely in this way, one of six kinds of views arise in him. The view self exists for me arises as true and established. This is another thing. Views are always considered true and established in us because we consider the mind. Because we have a view we think it must be right because we've got it. But any meditator must very quickly become aware of the fact that whatever arises in the mind is totally unreliable and uh, as quickly gone as it has come and has no reason for coming and no reason for going. It just comes. And the same happens with all views. So, he has this view, self-exists for me, or he has no self-exists for me, or he has, I perceive self with self, or I perceive not self with self. In other words, this self here perceives a not self, or this self here perceives a self. I perceive self with not self, or else he has some such word, it is this myself that speaks and feels. And that experiences, here or there, the ripening of good and bad actions. But this, myself, is permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and it will endure as long as eternity. So one has the choices of any of these. If one considers one's past and one's present in that intellectual manner, or am I or am I not, one then has this idea, or had it, always had it, that the self is here, particularly because it speaks and feels and experiences. So who is all this, that self? And then we start questioning. 
here or there, so am I or am I not? And then who's getting all the good and bad karma? It can only be me, isn't it, that's getting the good and bad karma. And then this idea that this self has always been and will go, will go on. This type of view is called the thicket of views, the wilderness of views, the contortion of views, the vacillation of views, the fetter of views. No untaught ordinary man by the, bound by the fetter of views is freed by birth, aging and death, by sorrows and lamentations, by pains, grief and despairs. He is not freed from suffering, I say. I'm finishing from, not by. Bound by the fetter of views is freed from birth, aging and death. I'll read that again. That sentence is, is wrongly printed, okay? No untaught ordinary man bound by the fetter of youth is freed from birth, aging and death, from sorrows and lamentations, from pain, grief and despair. He is not freed from suffering, I say. So when one has these views, uh, one, you know, it's a thicket in which one finds oneself. Unfortunately, this thicket has a sort of um, a quality of like a merry-go-round. There doesn't seem to be any way out of it because I am myself thinking so myself must be the thinking self. I am myself feeling so I must be the feeling self. Um, The very first abandoning goes through this inside path but what the Buddha is decrying is to use one's ideas to question it. A person who uses only their thinking potential is not going to get a straight answer because our thinking potential is not straight. It's convoluted. It cannot come to the end of anything. There's always something else. And our thinking potential is also dependent on conditions, on moods, on all sorts of conditions for which we don't even recognize so we think one thing one day and the next thing we next day we think the opposite in fact we don't have to wait for a day we can do this in five minutes so if we shouldn't do the thinking aspect we should do the inquiring aspect Now the well-taught disciple of noble ones who has regard for noble ones and is conversant with their teaching and disciplined in it, who has regard for arahants and is conversant with their teaching and disciplined in it, understands what phenomena are fit for attention and what phenomena are unfit. Since that is so, he does not attend to phenomena unfit for attention, only to those that are fit for attention. And what phenomena are unfit? And again, he says, those that make the unarisen taints arise and the arisen taints increase. Eh? And what phenomena are fit? Those that make the unarisen taints not arise and the arisen ones ab- being abandoned. By not attending to phenomena unfit for attention, but by those fit, the unarisen taints do not arise and the arisen taints are abandoned. And now he's going to give us the phenomena, the dhammas, not necessarily phenomena. Dhamma is everything that exists, but in 
is also the teaching so we always have to um, distinguish between the two so now he attends wisely this is suffering this is the origin of suffering this is the cessation of suffering and this is the way leading to cessation of suffering for noble truth so instead of looking for distraction and sensuous gratification emotional support systems uh, intellectual um, exercises and questioning we look at our own dukkha and accept it as a feature of existence having one cause only namely that we don't want things the way they are we want them different now that we don't want things the way they are but want them different is one of the absurdities in human life and we can see that in the way we treat nature we don't want it the way it is we want it different so we cut it down we spray it we plow it we uh, um, change it we change the water courses we we change the forests we change the land mass Holland is especially good at that changing the land mass and um, and then in the end we lament the forests are dying the rivers are polluted why because we don't like it the way it is we want it otherwise we want to have dominion over everything that exists for not realizing that we are that what exists and because we don't like it the way it is out there we also don't like it the way it is in here we're not contented we do not accept we do not accept that we have dukkha we want to get away from it as quick as possible or sometimes people also have the idea that it is a punishment they're getting and sometimes they even have the idea that it is a justifiable punishment there must be a dreadful state of mind to be in but it is also used sometimes but rather than seeing nature as it truly is namely that we want things differently from the way they are and that causes our dukkha we just want to get away from it and lament and grieve that we've got it now we don't like knowing all these things that the buddha tells us because it shows us in a totally different light it takes away a lot of our self importance and of course some of us might like that but some might not it's um not a uh, situation that is very um popular if it were people would far more people would practice the uh, understanding of that we are only aggregates and elements certainly reduces self importance it also reduces this feeling <clears throat> of um being in charge of anything at all so our dukkha which we could which we can easily uh, see in ourselves needs to have that second step 
of understanding how it has arisen. Now, if there is unpleasant feeling within, that doesn't mean there has to be dukkha. Unpleasant feeling can remain unpleasant feeling. It only becomes dukkha, suffering, when we don't want it. When we resist it and reject it, then it's definitely suffering. But until then, it's just unpleasant feeling. This can easily be checked out, this particular aspect, through unpleasant physical feeling. The minute we accept it as just an unpleasant feeling, there's no suffering at all connected with it. The minute we resist it and reject it, it's suffering. It's pain, grief and lamentation. Now obviously we are avoiding the cessation of suffering, which is Nibbana, avoiding it like the plague, one wonders why. And the way leading to the cessation of suffering is of course the Noble Eightfold Path. Well, that we are certainly practicing here. Sila Samadhi and Panya, in the first instance Panya, we have already gone through that, the right view and the right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. All of them help each other. All of them are dependent on each other. It is often said that when the Buddha formulated the Noble Eightfold Path as his, at his enlightenment, he at the same time formulated depend origination. Although the discourse on depend origination was given later, it is mentioned and it is said that it is exactly the same. He formulated it all at the same time. Everything depends on everything else. And if we don't see that in our own mind, we will still blame the outside trigger. It's all depending on something else. There's nothing to blame. It's just happening. It's a constant merry-go-round. And there is a door or a step that we can take to get out. Ignorance, karma formations, rebirth consciousness, sense, sense doors, sense contact, feeling, craving, clinging, birth, uh, becoming, birth, death. <laughs> the door out is after feeling. Not to try to get rid of it, no craving, but just unpleasant feeling. So what's wrong with unpleasant feeling? We think pleasant feeling is great. We think unpleasant feeling is terrible. So why? Why are we so judgmental and why are we so dualistically inclined? Why don't we just say feeling is feeling? There's no, no real reason for it except sensual desire. This first one of the three taints. So now what the Buddha is saying here is that as far as seeing which is insight is concerned 
we don't put our attention on that which increases the three fetters but we take them away from that and we put it on the four noble truths including the noble eightfold path now in order to do that we've got to know it by heart if we know it by heart it isn't enough yet we've got to know what it means and when we know what it means we've got to have the um, intention and determination to practice it and if we don't have that the whole of the Buddha's teachings is just going to be philosophy and it's often taught that asked that at the university but that's not what the Buddha had in mind the Buddha's only reason for teaching was there's only one thing I teach and that's suffering and it's end to reach only one thing that he wanted people to stop suffering because he stopped suffering he thought that would be the thing to do to help others in fact he couldn't help himself then once he started to do that now he says at the end of this this inside path here he says when he attends wisely in this way three fetters are abandoned in him the embodiment view uncertainty and adherence to rites and rituals these are called the taints that can be abandoned by seeing now the three fetters which are abandoned here are the three fetters of the stream enterer who has abandoned them and what they are the embodiment view is a wrong view of self where we think of ourselves as this is me and me wants this and me wants that and me is suffering and me is having a nice time the view of that person who has had stream entry knows that this is nothing but body and mind but cannot live accordingly all the time but it remains as an embedded right view and becomes the springboard for the next step uncertainty well what am I going to do with myself is the teaching right does the meditation work can I ever get there what, what am I doing this for what shall I do with my life skeptical doubt in Buddha Dhamma Sangha is the traditional way of describing it it's primarily in an uncertainty about one's own abilities and the last one is adherence to rites and rituals I like to translate that also as an embedded habitual way of reacting and considering that correct now if we do it because we can't help ourselves and would love to help ourselves that isn't adherence to it but when we want to stay the way we are because we think that's the right way to be then we are adhering and we're not adhering to a certain religious ritual which we may never have come across because we are not religiously minded or we've never been taught anything but we are adhering to our self-made view of what's right and that's the way we're going to do it and that is also a right and a ritual and that can be very difficult to shake because we don't see it unless somebody points it out and that's also difficult most people don't know it that, that well to point out where we are habitually inclined 
to do the same thing over and over again because we consider that correct. Which is, of course, also an, um, an underlying, underlining of the uh, um, being, of being. So a person who has had supplementary will have self-confidence, the right view of self, even though they can't live accordingly just yet, and will see that habitual reactions are no longer fit. Particularly also because the view has changed. And when one's view has changed, one has a totally different perspective. When one stands in front of a painting straight straight on, one sees it in a totally different way as when one's standing sideways or 10 meters away or, or 20 meters away. It depends exactly from where one is looking, what one sees. So with this, one has a, the right view of self, so it becomes a different view. One sees it from a different viewpoint, everything. So there's, um, uh, that's the first step. And this is a taint that can be abandoned by seeing. These are called the taints. So I would say that he's now referring to the three fetters, of which there are ten. And um, probably um, as we go on, we might see that there are some more of these fetters um, abandoned. The next step, in, which is not the um, inside one, but it's called restraining here, and here it's called yes, restraining. The taint. Reflecting wisely, abides with the eye faculty, restraint. So we don't go out trying to find to see something which is going to please us, but we restrain that. While taints and fever of defilement might arise in a bhikkhu who abode with the eye faculty unrestrained, there are no taints or fever of defilement in him when he abides with the eye faculty restrained. And the same goes for ear, nose, tongue, and body. So the five outer senses to restrain our sense contacts. Now, obviously, we're going to have them, but most people look for more than what are easily available. And our big cities are all catering to that with every billboard, every shop window, with every newspaper, every ad, everything that can possibly be used in order to lure our sense contacts rather than restraining them. So in the big city, it's not easy unless one stays home. It's easier in the forest, and yet there's plenty to see in the forest, and there's plenty to hear, and even to smell, and even to touch. The forest is not without sense contact for us. Sure, it's a more refined sense contact. 
but it doesn't change our craving to be in any manner or form. If we are looking to see, to hear, to touch, to smell, or to taste, there mightn't be anything to eat in the forest. But when it's in the city, it actually is more of an assault on the senses. But here, we look at for ourselves. Now, it doesn't mean that we can walk around without seeing and hearing. It's impossible. But the restraint means that we do not look for that which makes us underwriting this being, this I am, that what is pleasing. So reflecting wisely here binds with the mind faculty restraint. Now that's the sixth sense, the mind faculty restraint. We don't allow it to think anything at once. And we got, we, we finally come to the point where even not in meditation, we don't have to think. The mind can rest in itself be at ease and at peace unless and until it is required to respond. There are many occasions when we are required to respond. We've got to answer and we've got to um, maybe think about what we're going to do next and so forth. But there are many occasions, especially in a place like this, where we have no necessity to respond. So we restrain the mind. But particularly, and this is possibly the most important point, we restrain the mind from explaining the eye, ear, nose, smell and touch contact in a way which will make desire arise. That's restraining the mind. Now, the desire aspect, the sensual desire aspect, one must necessarily include the wanting to get rid of. Because whatever we want, whatever isn't pleasant, we want to get rid of it, it is also essential desire. So we've got to include both in that. So the mind faculty is not restraining that, it's not necessarily only confined to the fact that we can be without all this constant chatter in the mind, which is extremely um, enervating and... Um, disturbing, but we can also need to restrain the mind from responding to the sense contact with desire or rejection. All right, is that quite clear? Any questions? All clear? Now the Buddha says when one does this, there are no taints of fever of defilement in him when he abides with the mind faculty restrained. The word fever of defilement is an interesting one. It doesn't mean a physical fever naturally, it means a mental fever. The mind is in a turmoil. It's hot and bothered. Any defilement makes the mind hot and bothered. So if you've ever come across your mind feeling uneasy and uh, bothered and uh, anxious 
Well, just look for the defilement that makes it arise. Purity is cool. And purity is smooth, harmonious, at ease. While taints and fever of defilement might arise in one who abode unrestrained, there are no taints or fever of defilement in one who abides restrained. These are called the taints that can be abandoned by restraining. So what we're looking at, that these are choices, but also we can use all of them. The first one is the choice of insight, and having seen this with insight, stream entry uh, is the next step. Here, we're restraining, and with that restraint, the defilements fall away. And when they fall away, the same happens. When the purity of mind arises sufficiently enough, we are able, for a moment, to let go of our self-illusion. Purity needs to arise in the mind sufficiently because if it isn't, the mind is heavy, burdened, and a clinging, so it can't let go. So there has to be enough purity to be able to let go. Naturally, the calm meditation does a lot of work for us in that respect. the next one is to abandon taints by using but it doesn't mean using the taints it means a bhikkhu reflecting wisely, wisely uses a robe only for protection from cold from heat from contact with gad flies what is the other thing flies I suppose wind burning and creeping things and only for the purpose of concealing what disturbs conscience in other words one doesn't dress to attract one attracts to protect oneself from cold and heat from contact with um, insects burning and creeping things and for the purpose of concealing nakedness that's what disturbs conscience so that's what closing is for the um, I think I have uh, mentioned already the four requisites and closing is one of them and if one uses that, the clothing, to attract and um, to support the ego um, idea, one wants to look nice and have all the um, trimmings, it is necessarily, of course, again, in the direction of craving for being. So it's just for the purpose of doing that, for the purpose of being protected from that elements and from the uh, insects reflecting wisely he uses food neither for amusement nor for intoxication nor for embellishment but only for the endurance and continuance of this body for ending discomfort for assisting the holy life considering thus shall I terminate old feelings without arousing new feelings and blameless shall I live in comfort and health in other words this is um, actually uh, 
bit of a different translation of the uh, um, food um, verse that we use quite a lot reflecting carefully I use this food not for pleasure not for indulgence but only for keeping the body intact so this is uh, that part of it and the food should be eaten because the body needs it and not because we are looking for good tastes and uh, pleasures, amusements and of course in most cases most people don't eat just for having a bit of food in the body most people we have most of our holidays in fact all of our holidays are eating holidays <laughs> it, uh, it doesn't matter what kind it is and it doesn't matter what religion it is <laughs> and uh, in some cases we have um, the whole religion becomes eating that's also very popular and it's uh, absolute misery <laughs> it's very miserable because it becomes such an uh, uh, to do that one I mean, it, it's very common in the east with Buddhist monks and nuns make such a to do about the food that in the end sometimes I couldn't eat anything anymore I just couldn't bear that whole circus that went on just to have a just to have a meal, mm-hmm. and uh, so this is these are the Buddha's words: just eat what you need to keep this body intact. And he certainly did not um, have any ideas about making a great big uh, thing about it. In fact, in his day and today, the monks and nuns went on arms hands and pindapad with their bowl and people put something in and then they ate that and uh, of course in his day that was quite simple even today that is also such a rigmarole it's unbelievable they are uh, it's considered part of religion rather than just giving somebody something to eat and uh, he certainly didn't have that in mind you know. we used to go on Pindapad in Sri Lanka and uh, even in the poor villages it becomes such a thing it's uh, you know, like a village festival so that he never had that in mind just eat whatever is needed to keep the body going and reflecting wisely he uses a resting place only for protection from the cold and the heat, from the flies and the wind, burning and creeping things, for the purpose of warding off the perils of climate, for enjoying retreat. In other words, one doesn't have to have all the mod cons. One needs a place with a roof over one's head and where one is protected from cold and heat. He did say that it's difficult to meditate when one is very cold and one is very hot one should certainly try but it is difficult it's also difficult when one is very hungry and uh, in fact there was one time a story that uh, Buddha was ready to give a discourse he was outside a village and he under a tree and there were hundreds of people and uh, one of the bhikkhus said that earlier on a, uh, one of the farmers had come and had said to be sure 
and let him know when the discourse was on because he wanted to hear it. And this particular farmer now had not come. And so the Buddha waited and waited and waited and waited a long time. And finally, this farmer came running up and uh, very apologetic for having for coming so late and said that one of his cows had strayed away and he had to run after it and get it back because they are the wealth of a farmer. And uh, the Buddha asked him whether they had any lunch. And he said, no, no, he didn't have time for that. He had to run all over to find this animal. And so the Buddha asked somebody to give him some lunch. And they were still waiting for him to eat his lunch first before giving the discourse. He said, when you're hungry, you don't understand what's being said. So he had him eat his lunch first and then give the discourse to him. I mean, to everybody. He was very concerned with single people whom he knew really wanted to know and uh, of course he had clairvoyance and knew exactly what was going on with them and uh, so his care and concern for them was um, you know, based on knowledge and so the, the food aspect is important the cold and heat is important but we shouldn't make a fetish about it which we have done in the West we have made a, a thing out of food, not only in the West, I shouldn't say that, it's in the East, it's just as bad as the food. Um, we've made such a thing out of, about food that we have certain um, ideas, what we can eat and what we can't eat, how it should be and how it should be prepared, and how our houses should be. And he says, no, it's all just for the purpose of protection, and that the you know flies and all these things don't come into us and that we can have a retreat within our place, you know, where we can retreat from the elements. And the same then probably goes for the medicine. Yes, reflecting wisely, he uses the requisite of medicine as cure for the sick, only for protection from arisen afflicting feelings and for ensuring the minimum of affliction. Now, if anybody, when coming home, has a look at their um, medicine cabinet in the bathroom. I think they'll see that we're doing a bit more than that. And also, in the days of the Buddha, one of the most used medicines was urine. It's, uh, I don't suppose it's being used now, but um, it is a very, uh, very was, a, was a very common and very effective medicine. Is it still being used? Yes. yes? Really? Yes. What in... Uh, Natural yeah? Mm. Well, it was very common then. Of course, they didn't have all the uh, patent medicines that we uh, now are so fond of and carry around with us. So they had those kinds of natural medicines. But again, as cure for the sick, protection from arisen afflicting feelings, ensuring the minimum of affliction, so he's certainly in favor of using medicine so that there is no affliction, but just for that and not any excess. Now we may be a little more in line with that if we have given it some thought. We may be a little more in line with some of those things, but it's still far removed from the necessities, what we do. 
While taints and fever of defilement might arise in one who did not use the requisite thus, there are no taints or fever of defilement in one who uses them thus. These are called taints that can be abandoned by using. So, by using correctly. Huh? Now, this using correctly also means that we consider, that we don't take for granted, that we don't habitually do the same things over and over again but that we look at what we're doing and see, is this really helping us to reduce sensual desire? Is this helping us to reduce this craving to be here? And does it reduce our ignorance? Or is it just another support system for all three? We definitely are saddled with all three. We don't even have to um, inquire into that. But what we can inquire into is, are we noticing that we have them? We are so habituated to them that we don't notice that we have them. So it is a very good practice to inquire whether we notice them. And as we notice them, we may actually become aware of the fact what a nuisance they are. They're an awful nuisance. Particularly this one craving for being. It's the worst nuisance there is makes us do all the silly things that we've ever done and that we will ever do. It's not just wanting to be, it's wanting to be somebody. It's wanting to assert one's place, be it ever so small, anywhere at all. All squabbles arise out of that. If we notice that within ourselves, We've done quite a bit. We've done taking a step. Because we can, when we see the nuisance value, we certainly don't want to retain it. A nuisance value is um, a very important step in realizing something needs to be done about this. So the first thing I would say that can be done is not to reinforce it. Not to reinforce any of those, particularly the two. Uh, the, the craving to be and the sensual desire one, not to reinforce them. Now with the uh, uh, requisites, the four requisites, it's strictly concerned with sensual desire uh, because all four have to do with sensual desire, with being comfortable, with being fed, with having a nice place and all the rest of it. And, um, and the restraining one is also connected to the sensual desire one because it's our senses which makes essential desires arise. Whereas with the first one, which was the inside one, we are more concerned, although it also concerns sensual desire, but it's more concerned with this craving to be, because it connects to our wrong view of self, the inside one. Because all these views of self arise and was I in the past and am I going to be in the future and who am I going to be in the future? Who knows? And who was I in the past? And all that is all connected to this uh, being. Hmm? So the first one very much with the being, the seeing, the inside one and the restraining and, and um, using one with the sense desires. So we've got three more for tomorrow. Four more. One, two... Three, four more, four more for tomorrow.
Okay, any questions on this? No, we we say like this. That is the craving to get rid of craving. And the only craving that's worthwhile having is to get rid of craving. (laughs) 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 Because we can't jump over our own shadow. That's really what it feels like. Yes, I mean, we've got the craving. So if we don't want to crave having, you know, chocolate cakes, well, let's crave getting to Nibbana. At least we're going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And it's only completely abandoned. Um, craving as such is completely abandoned actually for the Arahant. Because there's not the slightest taint of self left. Or the slightest impurity of self left. But of course it gets less and less on the way. And as one sees that one has gone ahead a bit and can check oneself out, which is very important, reviewing knowledge, the um, the craving changes into a sense of urgency. And as it becomes a sense of urgency, it relates strictly to practicing. And the craving can be let go of at that time because one knows that, you know, there's nothing to crave, there's only the letting go. Yeah, the, yeah, the craving for, for the practice, I think, specifically, was what mm. Urgency comes, the urgency comes. Yeah. Especially if one knows that uh, perhaps one could have done something that would have been of value in uh, the practice, and one neglected that for whatever reason. Um, Yes, it's some vaguer urgency. But you see, if one could have done it, one probably would have. Because if one is practicing, that's the only thing one that is a the if. If one is practicing and doesn't do whatever it is that one would have liked to have done, one just wasn't able to. The, the mind wasn't right, ripe yet, wasn't mature enough yet. See, the only thing that one can possibly um, regret is not to practice. That one can regret. Buddha keeps saying, there are these empty huts and there are these roots of trees. Go bhikkhus and meditate. I have given you all I can out of compassion. So if one doesn't go to these empty huts and these roots of trees, well, well, that's another matter. But having done so and not um, attained a certain uh, freedom or whatever it is that one wanted to, well, it's just the mind isn't ready. It's just more practice needed. It's just the time time factors involved and practice factors involved. 
And the craving does change to some vigor, to urgency. can't see anything anyway. <laughs> it's all in one heap. <laughs> what you do, you just eat what you can and then if it's too much, if you know of, of beforehand it's too much, <clears throat> you can take it out of the bowl beforehand and put it on the plate so somebody else can have it. And if, if it's afterwards you found out it was too much, you couldn't finish, well, you give it to the birds or somebody. Nobody asks you anyway. What if they do? Well, would, doesn't really happen. Nobody asks you this stuff, stuff. <laughs> but if they did, and <laughs> what, 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 what do you mean? What would they say if they did? Whatever you like, or something like that. <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever. No, you just um, when you go on a pinder pad, on a proper pinder pad, nobody asks you anything. Did you ever go with me, Anya? No. no. I mean, nobody asks you. People give you, you know, and they give you too much, far too much. But that wasn't so in the Buddha's time. That's now. It's become a religion. Food has become a religion. Very I unfortunate. Like for ten people. Yeah, that's nothing. You should see it happen in Thailand. Or in Sri Lanka. I can remember those feasts that used to be As I say, it's a religion. Mind you, it's the same in the Jewish religion. Every holiday is is food. Always. And in Christianity, you've got Easter and Christmas. And uh, those people who gain weight easily, they're always afraid this is now going to be, well, how am I going to do this, you know? And, uh, I mean, it's all food. It uh, becomes a really um, a difficult matter in many cases. I mean, it goes so overboard that it becomes difficult. You know, so one tradition, you know, social culture, all those things have play a role in that. But what you see here in the putting food in the bowl. Uh, what you might have seen here is the, you know, nothing to what you see in the in the east. It's you know, really quite a different thing. 
but it's unfortunate because the Buddha certainly did not approve of that that's quite true quite quite sure Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. If you've ever had unkind negative thoughts about yourself love yourself in spite of them they're just thoughts love is a feeling warm and soft appreciating accepting caring giving wholeness and purifying If you've ever had an unkind or negative thought about anyone here, love that person just the same. Thoughts come and go. Love is a solid base for your heart. Establish it. Keep it intact, use it, we all have it. Use that feeling of wholeness, purity, warmth and care 
for everyone here. Reach out to your loved ones. Fill them with warmth. Surround them with care. Be with your friends, let your heart speak to them. Think of all the people you know, let them arise before your mind's eye. Let the warmth and softness and generosity of your heart reach out to them, embrace them, fill them with your love.
if there's anyone in your life for whom you've had unkind negative thoughts love that person anyway thoughts come and go love fills the heart give it generously Think of people on this globe, all having dukkha, all trying to get out of it. Love them, cherish them. Let your heart reach out to them, caring and accepting. Now put your attention back on yourself. Let this one person, with all its dukkha, have all your love. May beings everywhere come to the cessation of dukkha.